Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Tiger Gao. Here with me uh, over Zoom is my friend Kanishk Kanodia. He is uh, a sophomore on our team. Uh, Kanishk, would you like to introduce our guest for us today? Sure. Thank you, Tiger. So our guest today is Dr. Milan Reshnav. Um, Dr. Veshnav is a senior fellow and director of the South Asia program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in DC. He's the author of the book, um, Crime Pays, When Crime Pays, Money and Muscle in Indian Politics. And he also hosts his own podcast, which is called Grand Tamasha. Um, his primary research area is political economy of India. And he examines issues such as corruption, governance, state capacity and electoral behavior. Thank you so much, Dr. Veshnav, for joining us today. Thank you, Kanish Kintyre. It's great to be here. Why, why don't we jump right in, uh, Dr. Vaishnav, because the U.S. election just happened. We're recording on this on November the 13th, so about a week ago, uh, Kamala Harris and, and Biden were declared the winners. Uh, President Trump isn't conceding for now, but that was kind of the consensus back then, and Kamala Harris is widely seen as, you know, half African-American, half Indian-American, and part of the heritage. So do you have any quick reactions to, uh, to, to, to uh, the election outcome? Well, I wish we could say definitively that it is the outcome. Um, you know, one party is still disputing it, although you know, they don't seem to have many, much, many facts or, or, or evidence on their side. But uh, I do think when January 20th, 2021 20, rolls around, uh, Joe Biden will be our new president and Kamala Harris will be um, his vice president. And look, I think it's obviously, it's historic on multiple levels, right? It's historic that we saw the greatest voter participation in an election since 1908. Um, this was not a uh, low turnout kind of apathetic voter situation. It, despite the pandemic, people were very, very engaged. I think that's the first point. The second point is that, you know, I think sometimes people forget this, particularly outside of in, uh, the United States, that, you know, it is not that common for an incumbent president to lose his bid for re-election. In fact, Trump is the first incumbent to lose in more than 25 years. Um, so I think that's, you know, I think there are a lot of Democrats beating themselves up because they captured the White House, but they didn't get the Senate and they didn't expand their, their tally in the House. But in fact, this is, this is quite a big deal. And then third, uh, you know, directly to your question of, about Kamala, I think, you know, not only are we seeing the first woman vice president, but the, the first African-American, um, uh, uh, first, first Asian-American, um, you know, I can just tell you as, as somebody who is an Indian American myself, uh, who, who has two daughters, um, you know, that resonance um, really runs deep and, and far. Um, and I think to a certain extent, despite our, our, the polarization in this country, um, beyond just, you know, Democrats and Republicans. Got it. So also before the election uh, happened, you and your colleagues conducted the AAPI survey, which I think uh, was talked about a lot, I think, specifically in the context of like how Indian Americans would vote in this election. So how do you now after the, after the election results have come out, how do you see um, the survey results in terms of the way Indian Americans voted and like what voter issues were like pertinent to them? 
So just to make a quick distinction, so there were there was a survey called the AAPI survey, um, which was done by another organization. Um, they do surveys of the Asian American community every four years. Uh, we endeavored to do something slightly different, which was just look at Indian American political attitudes and preferences. So this was a collaboration between my organization, the Carnegie Endowment, uh, the University of Pennsylvania, and Johns Hopkins. And what we did was in September of this year, we interviewed around a thousand uh, Indian American U.S. citizens, and just ask them, you know, how are they thinking about the election? What is it that animates them? You know, who do they plan on voting for? And what we found is that almost three in four Indian Americans, seventy-two percent of registered voters, that's an important distinction, of registered voters intended to vote for Joe Biden, and just twenty-two percent intended to vote for Donald Trump. Uh, and that is pretty much in keeping with past practice. The Indian American community has historically been very pro-democratic in its political orientation. Uh, we do see some slight gains for Republicans. So I think the survey from 2016 that other organizations have done showed that uh, Trump got about 16% of the Indian American vote. It's not that surprising to see the numbers creep up. That typically happens when you have an incumbent, especially somebody who actually, I think both Democrats and Republicans would agree, did a reasonably good job managing U.S.-India relations from a macro perspective. When you, when you look at the issues that really matter to Indian Americans, you know, in some sense, Indian Americans really aren't that different from, from all Americans. Uh, they cared about three things, which is the health of the economy, uh, the state of health care, and, you know, kind of this conversation around racism, racial discrimination, social justice. I mean, those really are the three big challenges or crises that are facing the United States today. Um, foreign policy, which is something people thought would play a big role, particularly with the Indian American community, because that really was the pitch that Donald Trump was making, that he has forged a unique partnership with Narendra Modi, the Indian prime minister, and that was going to help him peel away Indian American voters from the Democrats and kind of move them over to the Republican camp. We just didn't see very much evidence of that, uh, in, in our survey at least. Just 3% of Indian Americans we surveyed said US-India relations was the kind of number one election issue. Now, we don't know, of course, how they actually voted. Um, this other AAPI group, which is run by a bunch of uh, political scientists based in California, uh, predominantly, it typically has done a post-election survey as well. So um, i uh, on the lookout for that to see uh, what that throws up in terms of, you know, how people actually voted on election day or in mail-in ballots and so on. Just a quick follow-up to that, uh, Dr. Vaishnav. I, I do see the distinction to be quite interesting because sometimes I'm on the Chinese Twitter, the, the, uh, which is largely um, the discourse between a lot of the Chinese Americans and uh, I have some family friends who, who talk and they seem to be very pro-Trump a lot of times because they, they a lot of them are single issue voters who cared a lot about China US, US relations and a lot of them do support uh, Trump's trade war. They, they see, you know, the, the rise of China hawks as some sign of whatever. So, so they do care a lot about foreign policy and sometimes even more so than domestic policies, and, and which is quite distinct from the, the, what you just identified, which is that Indian Americans are no, not so different from all other Americans and they care about healthcare, domestic economy. So we're really not seeing any sign that front. This seems to be quite two different ways of thinking between those two well, groups of people. You know, I, th I think, Tiger, one has to be very careful here in thinking about um, 
voting attitudes and preferences because one would also get the impression if one followed Indian American Twitter or Indian Twitter that that Donald Trump was going to win a, a vast majority of, of Indian American votes. So I, I think it is true that there is a very loud and organized and vocal uh group of people on social media uh, who have been talking about this move for some time. But, you know, you have to remember that the United States is a very, very big country. Um, most people are not on Twitter. Uh, most people are getting their news in, in different ways. Um, and that this is really a, 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 there is a structural reason or structural reasons, multiple, that Indian Americans seem to be tied to the Democratic Party. Uh, this is actually something that we asked uh, our respondents about, which is that if you are a Democrat or independent, why is it that you don't seem to affiliate with the Republican Party, right? I think it's an interesting question. And the number one response we got was that today's Republican Party is intolerant of minorities. Uh, and this is important because, you know, Indian Americans in some sense are seen as the poster children for, in, for America's relatively open liberal immigration and visa regime, right? I mean, uh, we sometimes forget that, you know, two thirds of people of Indian origin who live in the country today came after the year 2000, okay? That's just a mind boggling number, right? Um, they're about 4 million total. So Indians are make up the second largest uh, immigrant group now um, after, after Mexicans. Um, China is typically, I think, number three. Uh, sometimes China and India flip, depending on how you define China, if you include Hong Kong or Taiwan or, or, or not. Um, but the, the, the second reason I think is, is, is important, and this again came from the survey, is that a lot of Indian Americans view um, the Christian evangelical takeover of the Republican Party as fundamentally uh, anathema to them. Um, and, you know, uh, because the majority of uh, Indian migrants to the United States are not Christians, they are a small minority, but by no means the majority, I think this is something that often turns them off, specifically because Hinduism, which represents the majority of Indian immigrants, uh, the faith that they belong to, is not traditionally a proselytizing religion, right? So I think that it's, it's, it's the sense of you're not welcome in our camp. Uh, that drives, I think, a lot of motivations for Indian Americans, despite what you know you might hear on social media. Yeah, so you you talked about how like Indian Americans like were moving away from the Republican Party because of its anti-minority stance, right? And considering that even uh, the Prime Minister of India, Mr. Modi, also has this sort of uh, his policies have been very anti-minority. So, um, how much do you think was like the close relationship between Modi and Trump, say, for example? And the domestic events in India, like something like the CA, the Kashmir, the Kashmir policy, the NRC protests, and everything, how much do you think that must have affected um, the Indian American vote, if at all? So I don't think it was a prime determinant, Kanishk. Um, you know, I think one thing that's really interesting that we found is there is a common belief, I think, in the United States and in India as well, that if you are a Trump supporter, uh, that means you are also a Modi supporter. And if you are an opponent of Trump, that means that you're anti-Modi. And we don't actually find evidence of that. Uh, the way that I would put it is that, yes, it's true. If you support Trump, you likely support Modi. But if you don't support Trump, you likely support Modi too. Uh, in other words, Modi is pretty popular 
amongst both Democrats and Republicans. You know, uh, just to give you a concrete illustration, we asked respondents to put Narendra Modi on a scale of zero to 100, 100 being the most favorable and zero being the least. Uh, the average was around 55, so slightly more on the favorable side. There was a large spread between Democrats and Republicans. So Trump voters gave Modi a 76, which is a pretty high rating. Uh, and, and, and Biden voters gave him a 51. Now that's a 25 point spread. However, it is still 51, right? It's not 22 or 36. It is still above the median. And so I think uh, support for Modi doesn't necessarily predict how people are going to vote in an American context. All right. So I think now like talking a bit about like the future of the India-US relations, now that you possibly will have a democratic precedent and um, um, Democrats have emphasized a lot on human rights and issues of civil liberties, which India like has had a bad track record of in the past six, seven years. So how do you think, and especially someone like Kamala Harris, who has like specifically like uh, called out against like Modi's Kashmir policy. So now how do you think India and the US will navigate their relationship considering how important it has become because of the Chinese incursions and with these little irritants? You know, Kanishka, I think we have to go back uh, in history somewhat to uh, the late 1990s, early 2000s, which was really the beginning of the kind of US-India strategic partnership during the final days of the Clinton administration and then uh, uh, really built upon by the George W. Bush administration. Since that time, that was 20 years ago, we have seen a bipartisan consensus in Washington amongst both Democrats and Republicans that broadening and deepening America's relationship with India is in the collective national self-interest. That has been mirrored in India by a bipartisan consensus amongst the BJP and the Congress, the two major national parties. It is true that the Trump administration did not place democratic freedoms, human rights, civil liberties, uh, front and center in their foreign policy, really in any country, um, it just wasn't one of their, their signature issues. It is much more likely to get emphasis in democratic administration. However, I just don't think that there is any appetite in the democratic establishment, the foreign policy establishment to pick a fight with India because the China factor that you mentioned looms very, very large, right? America has made a strategic bet on India um, that is no matter how you slice it or dice it, colored in part by a mutual interest in staving off a kind of, you know, expansionist uh, China. And so I think, yes, it's true. You will hear more about Modi's domestic policies, particularly if they continue in a kind of majoritarian, you know, pro-Hindu way. Uh, but I think you will see that largely in the realm of rhetoric as opposed to policy change. And I think you will see a lot of those messages delivered privately, in other words, outside of our view, as opposed to publicly. Now, the one wild card here is the U.S. Congress, right, which um, obviously has has ways to 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 spotlight this issue through congressional hearings, through testimony, through resolutions and so on and so forth. Um, and I think that remains to be seen. I again don't I, I think the median member of Congress, um, again, is, is, is not in a place that they want to take on this fight at this point. If things continue to develop in India in a way that threatens democratic freedoms. I think you will start seeing not just 
progressive Democrats on the left, but also conservative Republicans on the right who care a lot about issues like religious freedom and intolerance and so on start to speak out. Um, but, you know, I think that right now we're at a reasonable distance from that. So do you think like possibly there's a possibility of a Biden administration sort of acting as a check on the Modi government by any chance whatsoever in terms of human rights and liberties? Well, I certainly think that a number of governments around the world uh, felt empowered and emboldened to act in either anti-democratic or liberal ways because the Trump administration essentially gave them the green light or looked the other way. Um, and I think if we had really any other Democratic or Republican administration, if you had a Mitt Romney administration or John McCain administration, I think you would probably see a different orientation. So I think it plays something of a role, but I wouldn't overstate it. I mean, you know, countries like India and China are big, big countries. It, it, the United States really doesn't have that many tools in its arsenal at the end of the day, other than kind of public pressure and 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 kind of diplomatic statements to try to, you know, coax India in a different direction. So I think it would have had an impact at the margins, but I don't want to to take away the agency that the government of India has from making domestic decisions, because I do think primarily it lies within their purview, not not the American establishment. Yeah. And I think like, I think also like recently when uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and uh, the Secretary of Defense, they went to India for the two plus two meeting as well. I think that just like enhanced India and the U.S.'s security ties. And considering that that was like the, their last visit before the elections and like they visited Sri Lanka and Maldives as well. So how do you see that in like in, in terms of security, in terms of like where the India-U.S. relation is going and how much the Indian subcontinent means to the U.S. now? I think it was actually a really interesting signal that uh, this two plus two dialogue between the foreign and defense ministers of India and the United States took place just days before the election, really. And it shows you a couple of things. One, the importance that uh, the U.S. administration places on the U.S.-India partnership. I think that's important for your listeners to note. The second is that the U.S. really does see an opening in terms of building on uh, what's been done between the U.S. and India and other countries in the region to, again, tighten the screws on, on China. Um, you know, I think that for many people in India, the recent border dispute uh, I shouldn't say recent, it's still ongoing between China and India really, really was a wake up call. Um, because yes, it's one thing for these issues to be taking place in the South China Sea or to be taking place elsewhere in the, in the Indian Ocean, but happening in your backyard on territory that you claim uh, brings it to a certain degree of salience, I think, that, um, that many ordinary Indians uh, who may not be following foreign policy can really understand. And so I think the U.S. has actually seen this as a, as a, as a really big opportunity. I think, you know, one has to really separate out the security dimension of the U.S.-India relationship from the economic one. I think uh, the Trump administration has indeed succeeded in making real gains on the U.S.-India security partnership, whether it's military to military uh, drills, whether it's training exercises, whether it's arms sales, whether it's signing what they call the foundational agreements that allow for the two militaries to become more interoperable, to share intelligence and so on and so forth. 
where we've seen less progress, frankly, and this is true even if you go back to the Obama administration, is on the economic side of the house. Yes, private sector trade flows continue to perform reasonably well, but in terms of government to government agreements on issues like trade, on issues like market access, on bilateral investment, even on things like immigration, have really gone nowhere. Um, and I think that is actually going to be the big challenge for the Biden administration, because I think now the security logic um, has a sense of wind in its sails and its own momentum. It's really on the economic side of the house where I think there's going to have to be some concessions made by both sides in order to break through the logjam that currently exists. Well, it seems to me, uh, so you, you, you cautioned us to separate the economic side of things from the security side of things. I, I guess one narrative that we constantly see in the media is how uh, especially the liberal media, I would say, uh, The Economist magazine or New York Times, whatever, t tends to portray uh, Prime Minister Modi as someone who is somewhat authoritarian, whatever, who is cracking down human rights and uh, religious minorities. And they would see Trump as, you know, uh, someone who lies, likes strong men, right? Hanging out with Kim Jong-un or, or uh, Putin or whatever, right? So so that seemed to be a narrative that, that is on ongoing. And especially with the recent tensions with, with China, that seems to be that India is also growing larger and larger in terms of its economic and military power. So the frictions are also kind of inevitable in that sense. So uh, in, in terms of the security angle, in terms of the narrative that you know, Trump and Modi's personal relations, do you see all th these things all coming to, together and, and fitting together in, in some sense uh, that, um, I guess I'm not phrasing this question very well in terms of whether you see any validity in, the, in that narrative that Trump and Modi's personal affinity for each other's strongman ambitions really came to flourish in the, in the past couple of years. I mean, I think the fact that Trump managed to strike a personal report with Narendra Modi did help push the bureaucracy to try to deliver on some of these outstanding you know, military agreements and, and, and so on and so forth. Um, but, you know, I, I think we often forget because we have a kind of recency bias, um, the kinds of close partnership that, that, that Modi and President Obama forged, right? I mean, these are two really, really different people from very different places. Um, it, many of their aides were shocked uh, and I've spoken with many of them at how these two men managed to, to forge an actual genuine partnership and mutual respect and friendship and discovered all of these kinds of bonds. You know, they're both kind of outsiders to politics in some way and came from, um, you know, had faced discrimination of different types growing up and so on and so forth. And so, um, you know, I think the, 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 the personal relationship is important. But I don't think that that's something that's just unique to, 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 to President Trump. I think it's something that, remember, Joe Biden uh, has 47 years of political experience or something, right? And he was the vice president. He's traveled to India. Um, he is well-known and well-respected by, by Indian uh, foreign policy elites. And so I expect him actually to just you know, pick up um, where this portfolio sits and, and, and try to try to grow it. I, I would just say that, you know, generally speaking, this is not an India specific comment. 
the U.S. is going to be primarily consumed by domestic issues, I think, in the coming months, because we do have real critical challenges here at home in terms of getting, you know, we're at 150,000 COVID cases a day. I mean, these are just numbers that, you know, it's hard to even get your, your minds around, right? Um, we have an economy that is clearly not firing on all four cylinders. And there are a lot of people after all of the protests of the summer around uh, police uh, brutality, around race, who are going to want to see uh, the president and the vice president, particularly the first African-American vice president, take these issues on board and come up with, an, with a plan. They're not going to ignore the rest of the world, but I just think that we have to be pretty pragmatic about where the weight of their emphasis is going to go in the early couple of months. Dr. Vaishnav, just to quickly uh, push back a little bit on that, I guess some people would say with a Republican-controlled, especially Mitch McConnell-controlled Senate, a Biden presidency wouldn't be able to get major domestic legislations out, and therefore he will spend a lot of time on relying on executive orders and making progress, especially in diplomacy, because that is something that the president has full control on. So especially, well, under the assumption that he will do a decent amount of stuff for foreign policy, where do you see things headed? Especially with India, you said he will pick up the portfolio left off. Do you think Trump, I mean, just a very quick assessment on his past four years, did an overall good job, positive influence on Indian American relations, or uh, was it not moving ahead to too much. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. I mean, I think that you could take a poll of experts or analysts in Washington and in and, 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 and New Delhi and find that people would give him an above average score on US-India relations. Um, in that, uh, again, generally, particularly on the security side, things did progress. Um, the economic side is a different story where I think you know, frankly, for structural reasons, the two countries are, are at an impasse uh, fundamentally because the U.S., for instance, has seen its manufacturing sector completely hollowed out over the last several decades. Uh, India had never really had a major manufacturing sector. It's trying to create one. And so um, these two visions are kind of at odds with one another. Um, and that also is something that plagued the Obama administration uh, as well. I, I think the, the, the one place where we could see some, some modest breakthroughs is on on, on some issues of kind of, you know, kind of market access, the United States, for instance, has traditionally granted India unilateral trade preferences for several products to enter the United States duty free under what's known as the GSP program. The Trump administration revoked that because of rising protectionism in India. I think that's something where uh, Joe Biden could use some of his goodwill to try to strike some kind of a deal. Um, you know, the president viewed a lot of economic relationships abroad through a single issue or a single prism, and that was the U.S. trade deficit with that country. Uh, yes, it's true. We have a trade deficit with India. It is a tiny fraction of the trade deficit that we have with China. Um, and I think a lot of experts believe that that was very misguided and wrongheaded to view everything through that prism. And I don't think that an incoming Biden administration would make that mistake. Just zooming out now to the kind of larger question, um, uh, I think that you're totally right that there are some structural veto points here, namely the US Senate, 
that will make it hard. I think there already is an intention to move certain things by executive order that can be done without having to go to Congress. And I do think there will be certain things on the foreign policy side that will be done rather quickly that can be done, um, not so much new initiatives as opposed to resetting old ones. So for instance, uh, indicating that we no longer plan to withdraw from the Paris Climate Accords, uh, indicating that we do plan on rejoining and, re and, and supporting the World Health Organization, right? Um, so there's a whole set of regional multilateral uh, networks that the United States has really retreated from in the past four years. And I think that's pretty easy to come back sort of online. But I do think in terms of the bulk of the focus, Tiger, uh, I mean, in, we have to think about economic stimulus. We have to think about, you know, um, even the COVID issue, which may not be a legislative issue, is going to require a lot of political capital for this president, uh, the president-elect, to talk to, to get people to, to 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 really take seriously the idea of wearing masks and social distancing and, and trying to come up with incentives for states to kind of you know follow their lead. So um, I just don't want to underestimate the magnitude of the challenge because I I think it's it's pretty unprecedented. Yeah, and I think. I think now sort of like pivoting towards India's COVID response. And I think we understand like how the U.S. has ha has a tremendous task ahead of itself. But how would you sort of judge Modi administration's pandemic response in terms of like the way it's handled it, uh, just to start on that? Well, I, you know, I think that it has been mixed. I am um, not somebody who is... Um, overly critical, I think, of the Modi administration's response. I think, number one, unlike President Trump and other world leaders, for that matter, uh, Prime Minister Modi never questioned the science. He never called it a hoax. I think he understood from the very beginning that this was a major threat that had to be taken seriously. Um, and so I do give him uh, a, a lot of credit for that. Um, I do think he has also spoken eloquently and at, at length about the need to protect others, not just yourself by wearing masks, by social distancing. Now, it's another question whether or not people are listening to his message, but I do think he has tried to use his bully pulpit to convey those issues. And again, in a way that American leadership has been pretty absent, at least coming from Washington. Where I think the Modi government has not uh, acquitted itself as well is number one, the way in which they announced this countrywide lockdown back in March with just four hours notice really threw tens of millions of people into a panic, uh, particularly, and I don't need to tell you this, Kanishk, um, migrants who live in big cities um, who panicked and, and struggled to get back home. Um, and that was... Um, not just costly, it was deadly in, in, in some cases, right? I mean, people who attempted to walk hundreds of kilometers back home. Uh, that was not necessary. In his primetime address, there were things the prime minister could have said to clarify what sort of services would be available to people, um, how, how he was going to deal with these issues of transport, how he was going to deal with the issues of food and safety nets. Um, and I think that is probably a big regret that they, they handled that in a rather careless manner. I think the second issue you can take some uh, uh, you know, criticism of is how generous the stimulus uh, response has been. Uh, as a percentage of GDP, India has not devoted uh, a great amount of money to trying to cushion the blow. 
Um, it has done a lot through monetary policy, um, but these fiscal instruments have been relatively limited. Now, here again, I think there are a couple of reasons for that. One is India's fiscal deficit is already out of control. Um, and so it's just not as easy for them to, um, to finance this kind of um, stimulus. I think number two, um, they are kind of waiting to hold the, their, their fire a little bit, knowing that this is not a problem that's going to be solved you know, overnight. Uh, and so they just announced a stimulus package this week which includes things like cash transfers to, to needy households and also some incentives for, for business and entrepreneurs to you know, keep people on the employment labor rolls, which I think is, 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 is really positive. Um, you know, I think that the, the, the one recommendation that, that, that a lot of people have had, which I think makes a lot of sense, is the, the thing that you really want to prevent is people from dying of hunger or struggling with, with starvation. And, you know, India does have record stocks of things like food grains and, um, and other things, stockpiles, that I think it should make available, whether or not you formally have what's known as a PDS card, which allows you to access the public distribution system for rations. Um, I think things like that could certainly help alleviate the blow, right? At a bare minimum, it is the government's response to make sure that people don't die of hunger. So I, I, I would say that's something where I, I, they, they're coming up with a design for how that could uh, be more universal, but I just think they need to, 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 to throw it open to whoever needs it um, at a bare minimum. Yeah, and I think like just this morning, I think I was reading something, was the some statistics about like how India's car purchases are back up like sort of reaching normal levels and other things that sort of like show us the urban demand but there's still a lot of concern about the rural areas like the demand is still not there and like there's massive unemployment um and so there is i think i'm sure after the pandemic that there's increasing inequality especially between the urban and rural areas and like between the upper and the lower classes so how do you think now that is going to affect the tide of populism in india like when we look at that well, I, I think it's it is going to have a, a dramatic effect on 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 rural government because remember a lot of the migrants who came from big cities like Bombay and Delhi and and Bangalore and Ahmedabad, uh, those migrants originate in the north and east, right? In places like Uttar Pradesh, your state, of Bihar, Jharkhand, Chhattisgarh, Madhya Pradesh. Um, a lot of those people are still back home. They haven't been able to go back. They're scared of going back. They don't know if they have jobs any longer. They don't have the kind of safety nets. Um, and so I think, you know, one of the key challenges is really uh, injecting funding into rural areas to make sure that they are taken care of. You know, I mean, I think this government came into power uh, really denigrating some of the schemes that the Congress government before it had put into place. Uh, and, and, and the one that gets a lot of attention is the National Rural Employment Guarantee Scheme, which some of your listeners may know guarantees 100 days of paid labor to, for rural dwellers. Um, they, you know, Prime Minister Modi, it was a funny incident where he, 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 was, he announced that he would be giving more money to this program but also regarded it as a testament to the Congress government's corruption. It turns out that it's actually one of the the the, the best 
programs to have during a crisis because it's purely demand driven, right? You're not going to go try to sign up for 100 days of free labor um, if you really don't need it. Um, and so I would expect programs like this to actually help keep keep people afloat. And I think the other thing it's going to do is it is going to rejuvenate a conversation which had begun under this government, um, in, particularly in the first term, around a universal basic income. Uh, what we are seeing right now across India are pilot programs, uh, particularly at the state level. There's one big national program. They're not universal in the traditional sense. You could call them quasi-universal or, or, or universal for particular subgroups like farmers. But I think that that idea of a UBI is going to gain increasing traction. And I expect that we're going to see more states start piloting it, um, even if we don't see a national level program. And, and that will be one of the tools that people use to try to combat economic inequality. And also, I think like one of the biggest challenges like, in a country like India, like with such programs is like the distribution network as to how do you get all these um, sort of benefits and schemes to the like the number of people, which like is like an, an Indian population considering that. And like, I think you've also like in the past, you've talked about how India's networks have actually improved over the years because of a lot because of what the Modi government has done. So I think now, how do you think, like how much do you think these networks are under constraint and how much do you think they can be utilized to sort of like for like cash transfers, for food distribution and like employment benefits, et cetera, et cetera. So I think you're absolutely right that, you know, the, the, the signature kind of social welfare policy of the Modi government has been what they call JAM, um, Jandan Yojana, which is a universal household bank account scheme, Aadhaar, which is it's India's unique biometric identification scheme, which now has 1.25 billion people enrolled in it. And th so that's the J, the Aadhaar is the A, M is mobile money the ability to allow people to do, you know, consumer banking online uh, via their smartphones. Um, and they have really tried to invest in what they call the jam trinity. Uh, you know, I think the evidence is very mixed on how well it's worked. Um, not because um, theoretically there's something uh, wrong with, with these three elements, but they still require a certain level of infrastructural capacity that is lacking in India. Uh, it, they still require the fact that you need to have uh, biometric scanners uh, that work in places that need to be connected to the, to, to the internet, right? So that, so that um, people are able to actually access these, these goods and services. You know, I mean, some studies that have been done, there is one in particular by the economist Karthik Muralidhar and colleagues. Um, he's an economist at UC San Diego, which looks at, um, at the cash transfers in the PDS scheme in, in Jharkhand, in the state of Jharkhand, and finds, in fact, that um, the gains are not super clear because the transaction costs really, really do rise for people. I mean, imagine if you have to walk 10 kilometers to go and authenticate yourself in order to get your cash transfer and the machine doesn't work and you have to walk back home and do it all over again, you know, the next day or the next week. And so I, I think these things will get... Um, smooth that over time. But I think they also remind us that I think there was a hope at one point, whether it was articulated this way or not, that technology would become a substitute for state capacity. And I think what we're seeing now is that it is a complement to state capacity, but cannot be a perfect substitute for it. 
Um, and I think that's an important realization and I think a, a, a good lesson for India, India to learn, but not just for India's sake, you know, many countries around the world, many other developing countries are looking at India as a particular model for how they could build on this very kind of technological infrastructure. And so I think it also holds out lessons for them about sequencing and, you know, what kind of gains to expect within what timeframes. Yeah. And I think like, um, also like such, I mean, national crises, like uh, a pandemic can be like, moments for the rally around the flag effect in which the leader's popularity surges or like and but they can also be used by the opposition to like really question and like down like question the downfalls of the government and we've actually seen a mixed I, I said like a, a mixed response about the government's sort of steps to counter the pandemic so now which of these trends do you see most prevalent in India like is do you think like uh, Modi's popularity will surge uh, because of the way he's, he's responded I mean like we just had the Bihar elections like earlier this week and his party clearly won like their, their seat count clearly increased by a lot so do you think like there is a trend of rally around the flag effect or do you not see that at all in India right now? I, I, I do. Um, I, I think that, you know, one of the great puzzles of Indian political economy is why Modi remains as popular as uh, as he does despite the fact that you have uh, a pandemic, which is continuing to take its its toll. Um, the fact that you have a massive conflict um, with China on your border, in which some people have argued that China has occupied more territory uh, that India has claimed, you know, since the 1962 war. Um, and you also have an economic slowdown, which is partially induced by COVID, the COVID lockdown, but in fact began well before COVID um, and has been a kind of protracted slowdown over the past couple of years, at least in part driven by domestic policy decisions that the Modi government has itself taken, right? So um, I, I think the way that people have tried to understand this is really um, that, you know, Modi occupies just a very unique space right now in the body politic in India um, because he has seen as a uniquely charismatic leader, a uniquely muscular leader, a uniquely um, uh, incorruptible leader that um, means that he's not necessarily subject to the traditional politics of accountability that uh, political scientists talk about, you know, and all their models of retrospective voting and so on and so forth, right? Uh, that instead, you know, and, and this is something I know that uh, that you're familiar with, Kanishka, is, is, is this idea of the politics of vishvas or the politics of faith and trust. It's a phrase that that my colleague Nilanjan Sarkar came up with. And, and, and what that means is that, you know, people are willing to give him a pretty long leash to try and improve India's um, economic, foreign policy, social position. Um, and what's really helping him in this regard right now, frankly, is the fact that you have such a weak and fragmented opposition. Uh, there is really only one pan-Indian opposition party today, and that is the Indian National Congress. And the Congress after its historic defeat in 2014 in the parliamentary elections, faced two existential crises. One was about how do you restore a credible, uh, charismatic uh, kind of um, 
well-directed Congress leadership. And the second is, how do you rejuvenate or resuscitate a kind of ideological core of the Congress party, party that had been hollowed out? Uh, here we are six years later, and these are still the two very issues that we keep talking about, right? We have seen almost no progress on either of these fronts. And so in some sense, it's, it's not that surprising that, um, that Modi is able to run roughshod over the opposition, at least in the national domain of politics, right? I think state elections can be sometimes very different um, where you have a number of very powerful regional parties. You do have some places which have strong Congress cotter and strong Congress leadership. We've seen the BJP routinely lose state elections. But at the national level, I just don't see, if you look out on the horizon, uh, who is going to go head to head, toe to toe with Modi to take him on and win that battle in the hearts and minds of the, of the Indian public at, at, at this point. 2024 is a long time away from now. Things could obviously change, right? Um, Indian politics is famous for, 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 for its volatility and unpredictability. But right now, I think as a political analyst, one has to say um, it, it just hasn't materialized. Yeah, and I, I think like, and we did see like a lot of attempts by the opposition to sort of muster a coalition of opposition parties and counter Modi like in the elections like 2019 as well. But I think, yeah, none of that, they just like took off. I think they all like, um, yeah, I think Modi has been able to outrun them specifically at the national level, as you talked about. But I think, again, like sort of like going back to this phrase of like Vishwas versus Vikas, of faith versus development, right? How do you think like the opposition parties can sort of revive the trust? Because we have seen like, I mean, like, uh, like a lot of instances of, uh, again, the opposition parties trying to go out of their way to sort of, um, try to do that. I mean, the Congress has not been successful at all, but like other parties, again, trying to fill that gap and fill that space of like a national opposition party. So how do you think like they can revive back and revive that trust amongst the public? I mean, I think you've got to proceed simultaneously along three fronts. One of the things that BJP has mastered, um, whether you like the BJP or not, is the politics of the permanent campaign. Um, the party machinery just simply does not um, withdraw and evaporate uh, after the election is over for the next five years. And one of the things that we're seeing with the opposition is um, the inability in certain places, many places, to sustain a kind of constant program of, of attention and leadership and delivery and service in between elections, right? I think that's a that's a, a real lesson that can be learned from, from, from the BJP. I think the second is that, um, you know, frankly, there, there is a leadership dilemma at the top. And um, as, as long as Rahul Gandhi, who is the heir to the Nehru Gandhi dynasty and, 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 and the heir to the, the Congress party throne, as it were, um, is, 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 is blocking the way for other talent to emerge, I simply don't have faith anymore that the opposition is going to coalesce because I just don't think that they have the Vishwas in, in Rahul Gandhi. Um, so I, I, I think that is a, a crisis that is that is like watching a slow moving train wreck because it's been playing out for years and years and years, but I think has to come to some kind of conclusion. Uh, but I think the third is that, you know, it is not enough to simply be anti-Modi. And I know that sounds like such a trite stupid thing to say because it's so obvious but 
Um, I'm not really sure the opposition has learned that lesson, right? On, on two counts. One is uh, on what is the economic program that you think India deserves for its future, right? As opposed to just criticizing the implementation of the goods and services tax or demonetization or so on and so forth. What is it if you were in power that you would do differently, either in terms of policy direction or sequencing or so on? I think the second is, is this issue of secularism, right? I mean, I think the, the, the notion of secularism in India as it's traditionally been defined is defunct. It simply doesn't have that many takers anymore. Not that secularism doesn't have takers, but the way in which it's been practiced, I think, um, has been very hollowed out. And so that has allowed the BJP essentially to have complete hegemony over this discussion of um, the interaction between you know, religion and the state, religion and citizenship and so on and so forth. And you know, I just don't see the kind of introspection and deep thinking on the part of the Congress party and the opposition to really think through, you know, what secularism 2.0 looks like. Um, I think if they did that, there would be some takers for it, but I just don't see that reinvention happening as yet. Yeah. And I think like just talking about like this notion of secularism, right? Like, I'm not, I mean, it's correct. Like, I think like it has like sort of like become something that the Hindus of India, like the like the main water bank for Modi has like has started to look down upon like, a lot. And I think throughout August, I think that was a really interesting debate that I was reading between Professor Bhanu, Professor Bhanu Mehta, who's like one of India's leading political scientists, and Yogendra Yadav, who's India's one of most prominent political activists, about like diagnosing like where has Minsafilism gone wrong. And I think one of the main takeaways that I had from those like uh, constant back and forth of articles was that it has become synonymous with like the politics of opportunism and like it has just failed to connect with people in their language so where do you think it has like indian secularism has failed like indians and like hindus specifically well i think you know uh, it's important for your listeners to know who don't follow the ins and outs of this that secularism in india has been defined in a very unique and particular way in the United States and in most Western European countries, we think of secularism as a strict separation between church and state, that there is a firewall of some sense, in some sense, that the state doesn't intervene in religious affairs. That is not the definition of secularism in India. The definition of secularism in India is that the state can indeed intervene in religious affairs, uh, things like, uh, you know, to try to reform illiberal social practices that perform by certain religions, so on and so forth, but it must do so um, in a in a principled way, keeping equal distance between itself and every religion, right? So um, if it moves to reform illiberal Muslim uh, Islamic practices, it must also do so for Hindus and vice versa. Over time, I think, two things have happened. One is that it is very, very hard to um, police that line of, 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 of equal embrace, equal distance, right? Um, because who's to say that it's actually equal? I think that's one. The second is that um, secular parties, I think, going back to your phrase of opportunism, have cynically manipulated and used religion um, as a way of earning votes when it has suited them. And so that has led to people including the BJP, charging them with pseudo-secularism. And I think there is truth to that charge, right, uh, on, on, on some accounts. Um, whether it was Indira Gandhi in the Sikh community, was it Rajiv Gandhi in the Muslim community, right? We could think of, 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 of many examples. 
Um, now, that is not to say that the BJP is somehow not doing the same thing uh, with the Hindu vote, uh, but it is just to say that they have been able to call out the hypocrisy of, of, of the secular parties. And so um, uh, I, I think that's, that's why in a country that is 80% Hindu, um, secularism has become coterminous in many people's mind with minority appeasement. And that is electorally fatal. And I think that is the, the, the hole that the opposition has fallen into and is not sure quite how to, to, to climb out of. Um, one initial response they've had is essentially to try to mimic some of the BJP's policies, um, which has gotten them labeled the, you know, the BJP B team or Hindutva light or something like that. And I, and I just don't think that that is going to be what it takes for them to 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 create enough distance between them and the and the BJP. Uh, Dr. Vaishnav, I know you have to have a hard stop in around three minutes, so I'll just quickly wrap up here. Uh, you know, as the host of Policy Punch, I, I don't want to pretend that I know a lot about Indian domestic affairs. So, uh, I have asked Kanish to really help me out, but I would say at the very end, uh, I, I was I spent around three weeks, about a month in India this past winter. Christmas break. I was on a yoga meditation trip with Princeton's Office of Religious Life, and I, I spent a lot of time there. And one takeaway I had, and also based on some of our conversation with my friends, is that India seems to be a very resilient country. I mean, the social structure is built around communities. It's about supporting each other, uh, and it's also a faith-based, you know, largely Hinduism-based kind of culture, which means that it seems to me that people can bounce back very quickly from hardships, such as one that we're seeing now for COVID-19. So maybe with that message, I would just ask you at the very end, one is, uh, are you pessimistic or optimistic about how things will unfold in the next couple of years or a couple of months? And also, since the name of our show is Policy Punchline, what would your punchline be for uh, our listeners' takeaway today? <laughs> Wow. Well, uh, two very small questions to, to answer <laughs> in about yes, 90 yes. seconds. Um, yes. <laughs> you know, I, I would say that, you know, every decade since the 1950s, there has been a big thinker who has published a book about the demise of, of, of the Indian state and Indian democracy. And each time the, that author or thinker has left with egg on his or her face because <laughs> India has proven them wrong. So I certainly would not be foolish enough to bet against Indian democracy for sure. I think what you said about resilience is, 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 is quite right. And that's really the paradox, which is that uh, India, you have an incredibly strong society that has traditionally been built on the pillars of family, of, of, of kin, caste, and, 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 and the village. Um, that has created a lot of uh, problems uh, and a lot of illiberalism, but it has also limited uh, absolute uh, power and, and, and dictatorship. Um, so it, it, it has a paradoxical quality uh, uh, to it, I think. My concern going forward, um, uh, and this is, I think, in some ways, the, the, the punchline, is that I don't know of very many people who worry about electoral democracy in India um, in sense that you're seeing uh, massive voter turnouts in elections. You are seeing not just competitive elections, but hyper-competitive elections. You are seeing genuine alternation of power, particularly at the state level. Um, it is really the content of democracy between elections that um, shows so many infirmities or maladies, right? So it's things like freedom of expression. It's things like 
checks and balances on executive power. Um, it is gaps in, in, in the federal relationship. And uh, so I think that's what I think keeps a lot of people up at night. Um, and I think it also though, the, the, just to end on an optimistic note, it, it does create space, I think, for an opposition or for a new political equilibrium who is willing to take those on, right? Uh, you know, one of the, um, the, the, the things that's out there for the taking, you know, uh, Kanish mentioned the, the scholar thinker Pratap Banu Mehta, um, who has said, you know, if the opposition really believes that this government is intolerant, why don't they back a new charter of fundamental freedoms that involve things like making, uh, getting rid of laws on criminal defamation, right? Uh, getting rid of British era, era uh, sedition laws, really calling out uh, uh, the, the, the people who have used laws on the books for their own nefarious purposes. So I do think that, you know, th th that's the hope is actually that there, there, there could be a new generation of politicians who are willing to take that gamble. And I think if they play their cards right, frankly, would find a, quite a lot of support because I think, unfortunately, parties of all stripes have been compromised in very fundamental ways that that allows for you know I, I think breakthrough to be possible. So so I'd like to leave on an optimistic note and say that you know it's not all do, doom and gloom. That was a wonderful punchline to to end on. Thanks so much, Kanish. Thank you so much, Dr. Vaishnav. That was a wonderful interview on uh, Indian domestic politics, Indian voter turnouts in America, and, and such and so on. So we encourage you to follow more of Dr. Vaishnav's work, read his book, Wunkran Pays, uh, follow his work and writings on Carnegie Foundation. And uh, uh, thank you so much for, for listening today and for joining me today. Thank you, guys. It was great to be with you today. Thank you so much, Dr. Vaishnav. It was amazing to hear you. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.